My name is Dr. Joshua Knapp. I'm a board-certified clinical psychologist and 21st century Christ follower. Early in life, I experienced overwhelming psychological suffering, which led me down a path of wandering away from the Christian faith in my adolescent years, reminiscent of the lost son in Luke's gospel, returning to my Christian heritage in my early 20s, my own psychotherapy in my mid-20s, and ultimately a life committed to understanding and pursuing psychological and spiritual health as I now head into the middle years of my life. Please join me as we devote each week to better understanding secular and Christian perspectives on mental health and the intersection between psychology and Christianity. Then engage in a 10-minute practice to conclude each episode drawing upon Christian meditation, prayer, and contemplation. Above all else, my aim in this podcast is to journey with fellow Christ followers, as well as those who are curious about the rich heritage of Christian psychological and spiritual insights into the human condition. Doing so with humility and curiosity as we strive to cultivate Christ-likeness in all we do. Hi, I'm Dr. Joshua Nab, and welcome to another episode of The Christian Psychologist. In this 29th episode, I'd like to talk about a topic that I think is seldom discussed in both secular psychology and Christianity, worship as a verb or worshipfulness as a noun. I'd also like to discuss what I see as a similar overlapping concept that's received a decent amount of attention theoretically and empirically in secular psychology of late, awe. A-W-E, and how it relates to worship and is for Christians embedded in worship. So to get us started, I think a few questions are important to consider for 21st century Christ followers. What is worship? And as a part of worship, awe in Christianity. Do we need to experience worship and awe in both life in general and Christianity in particular? What is worshipfulness and to what areas of life can it be applied, especially for 21st century Christ followers? What are the psychological and spiritual benefits of awe and worship, as well as worshipfulness, as both a state and trait applied to all of life? What does the Bible say about the topic of worship and awe? And how might classic Christian spiritual writings help us to practice worship and awe and worshipfulness before in and through God in every area of life. So ultimately, how can 21st century Christ followers begin to worship God in reverential awe seven days a week, 24 hours a day, to be in right relationship with him and experience psychological and spiritual health, not just when singing worship songs for a few minutes on Sunday morning? So to get us started, get us warmed up with opening a few opening quotes, I'd like to really capture, or at least attempt to capture, the importance of a sense of worship and awe more broadly and worshipfulness more specifically in the Christian life. So the famous 20th century scientist Albert Einstein is quoted as saying, quote, there are two ways to live. You can live, live as if nothing is a miracle. You can live as if everything is a miracle. The most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and all science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer pause to wonder and stand in awe, is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. 
end quote. The famous Christian writer Thomas Aquinas, several centuries ago, is quoted as saying, quote, because philosophy arises from awe, a philosopher is bound in his way to be a lover of myths and poetic fables. Poets and philosophers are alike in being big with wonder, end quote. The famous 20th century Christian writer A.W. Tozer powerfully noted, quote, without worship we go about miserable, end quote. Another famous 20th century writer, C.S. Lewis, declared, quote, the most valuable thing the Psalms do for me is to express the same delight in God which made David dance, end quote. In fact, in Psalm 145, we read, quote, My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. End quote. As these quotes reveal, which span secular and Christian sources, worship and awe are part of the human experience, capturing what it means to be alive. For Christians, worshiping God for who he is as infinitely good in reverential awe is key for optimal living and mental and spiritual health, which we will be focusing on in this episode. But before moving on to the secular psychology literature and awe, then Christianity and worship and awe, I'd like to share a short story. So I could still vividly remember the panoramic landscape. I traveled with friends and family up a small mountain, locally, some may even call it a hill, which included a large historic cross at the top and a 360-degree view of the surrounding cities. As we rested at the foot of this large cross on the top of this mountain, looking out onto the horizon that surrounded us, I used my God-given senses to immerse myself in God's beautiful creation with a deeper experience of God's presence and his goodness and vastness. In this moment, I felt really small in a good way, and I was able to let go of the worry, stress, and other unpleasant inner experiences and and outer distractions that I so often struggle with. As I unfortunately often turn inward and focus on myself. Yet in this very instance, it was not me. It was me and God. And he was big and good and powerful. And I was small and insignificant, again, in a good way. I did not need, in other words, to protect myself, inflate myself, be the center of attention, or compete for others' attention. Instead, I could let go and feel overwhelmed in reverential worship and awe before God. And this was good. During these few short minutes, time paradoxically seemed to slow down, and I could sink into the vastness of the present moment, which God had in the palm of his hand. As I worshiped God with all of my attention for those few moments, with an attitude of deferential yielding awe, I felt more connected to him than I had in weeks, maybe even months, and I just rested in his loving arms As we got ready to trek back down the hill, I thanked him with a simple thank you, God, knowing he was really great and I was small. And I could not in that moment fully capture him with my finite human mind. 
Yet I could in reverence, honor, and praise just thank him with my mere human words, a few imperfect syllables strung together to form an imperfect sentence. I did not in this moment need to be in control. I did not to be big, need to be big or large or at the center. I could surrender in reverential worship and awe to a perfect, benevolent king who was and is in full control and much bigger than I could ever imagine. My human mind creates idols, whereas God is vast, worship worth, worthy of our worship. God is at the center. God is the creator. God is both knowable through scripture and ultimately unknowable and ineffable. And beyond our comprehension, this mystery, this wonder is to be celebrated, is to be worshiped. So with this story in mind, let's now turn to the secular psychology literature to better understand this experience of psychological awe. Then turn to Christianity to make sense of how, when embedded in Christian worship, we can, as 21st century Christ followers, cultivate and maintain psychological and spiritual health. So in the last several decades, many psychologists, secular psychologists, in first drawing from philosophy and theology, but gradually taking on the topic on their own, have taken an interest in awe, both theoretically and research-wise. Within the formal discipline of secular psychology of late, it has been written on and researched in the context of both well-being, or what goes well in life, what goes right in life, and psychopathology, or what goes wrong in life, psychological suffering, psychological disorders, etc. In terms of a formal definition of awe, the American Psychological Association Dictionary of Psychology defines it succinctly as, quote, the experience of admiration and elevation in response to physical beauty, displays of exceptional ability, or moral goodness. The awe-inspiring stimulus is experienced as vast and difficult to comprehend. So really, we're triggered by beauty, people with talents and skills, or moral goodness. And this is bigger than us and hard to wrap our minds around. And it's often experienced positively, not negatively. Others have described it in the psychology literature as either a state or trait, as well as an emotion that involves the experience of vastness, such as seeing a beautiful sunset or trying to contemplate heaven or eternity, a diminished experience and focus on the self, an increase in the desire to connect with others via the experience of seeing the interconnectedness of reality and people, and an increase in meaning because of a more transcendent perspective on life which can increase well-being and decrease depression, anxiety, stress, and trauma symptoms. Possibly because of a pivot from self to a greater sense of other, and the vastness of the other, for Christians being God, and the small self that is the self. So bigger other, smaller self, which means we actually can experience greater well-being and less of a preoccupation with ourselves, which is common with depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, trauma-related disorders. With those disorders, we often can turn inward or be preoccupied with danger, hopelessness, the re-experiencing of trauma, but with awe, we are 
really yielding to something greater than us, and we are just basking in it. Recently, researchers have developed an actual formal measure of awe, a questionnaire of awe called the Awe Experience Scale with a few different dimensions, six different dimensions. A dimension of vastness or viewing something as enormous, such as a building or mountain or trying to contemplate the meaning of life or heaven or eternity or God. The second dimension would be accommodation meaning that we need to adjust our previous understanding of the world to make room for this vastness, to make room for this awe. It changes us, and we need to adjust. The third dimension is time. Time may be experienced as slowing down. We may be more in the moment. The fourth dimension is self-loss, seeing the self as less important, smaller, in a good way. So what we might call a small self. The fifth dimension is connectedness. We may feel a greater sense of connection with others, with the world, which, again, transcends our self-preoccupations, transcends our sense of self in a good way. And then lastly, physiological, the sixth dimension. So we might experience this as being frozen in the presence of this vastness. For Christians, again, that would be God. Or feeling chills, this idea that there's something beyond us and we experience this frozenness or or experiencing chills throughout our body because we are overwhelmed by it. So with this scale, researchers have found that the six dimensions of awe are consistently positively associated with other positive emotions, such as joy, contentment, compassion, and love. So really, awe is connected to, linked to, through research where we give people formal questionnaires, a variety of other positive emotional experiences. And in this type of research, common triggers for awe include nature, spiritual experiences of God, observing a a skill displayed, and so on and so forth. As we think of worship, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it is giving or expressing, expressing worship or veneration. And the APA Dictionary of Psychology notes that worship is reverence, or adoration for a divine or supernatural being, a person or principle. And really, worshipfulness is a state of being worshipful. I would say in the context of the major world religions, awe is really embedded in worship. And although the secular psychology literature, since its formal founding maybe 150 years ago, we haven't spent as much time and energy looking at theoretically and empirically, worship, we have spent a lot of time looking at awe, which, again, has been theorized about and empirically investigated with scales and so on and so forth. So what is the relationship between awe and worship and mental and spiritual health? Well, for awe, one article titled The Potential Role of Awe for Depression, Reassembling the Puzzle, suggests that given awe is about self-diminishment, quote-unquote, and a focus, quote, outside and above the self, end quote, some authors really have, in secular psychology, theorized that it can be helpful for those with major depressive disorder, given the focus in depression is on really uh, self-preoccupation, self-referential thinking, ruminating about the self, ruminating about our relationship with others, and a sense of hopelessness. 
So what we're doing potentially, or at least theoretically with awe, we're pivoting from self-preoccupations to this vastness. Again, for Christians, this would be God. And we are standing in reverence. And this can take the focus off of the self, which is so common with depression, even with anxiety and trauma, because we live in a fallen, broken world. And with depression, there's a deep sadness. And, and as a result, we are preoccupied with this sadness and the distress it causes. With anxiety, we may be preoccupied with danger. With trauma, we may be preoccupied with, again, danger and the re-experiencing of trauma. And so with awe, there's a shift from the self to the vastness of the other. Reviews of prior research have suggested that awe can be positively or positively influence well-being and negatively influence aggression. It can also positively influence spirituality and a sense of intentionality in life. In an actual research study, research found, researchers found that awe, by way of an increase in the experience of the small self, can help to reduce negative emotions during self-threatening experiences. And so this may occur when there's a shift away from a focus on the self and toward the experience of a higher power that's vast, that's bigger than the self, which again leads to less self-preoccupation. So this small self experienced during awe can help to pivot away from self-threats, perceived self-deficiencies, and so on and so forth, given the self is no longer a point of focus because of the vastness of the other. To put this dynamic more succinctly, the experience of awe is linked to a greater small self or a smaller self, which is linked to lower negative emotions that emanate from the experience of threat and threats to the self. Threats to the self might include a dangerous physical situation. It might include threats to our status, whether that's on social media or in other interpersonal exchanges, a threat to the self when it comes to maybe a job loss or other kinds of things. So as we think about awe, the psychology of awe, and then more broadly worship, so awe can be embedded in worship, I'd like to turn to the Christian tradition to talk a little bit about what it looks like to increase worship and embedded in worship awe in order to, I believe, improve mental health and spiritual health. So in Christianity, although we have God's word, the Bible, to give us some sense of who God is, as, for example, infinitely loving and good, wise, powerful, present, and holy, and to better understand God's providential care or good governance, which extends to all of creation. Although we have these things, we are finite and God is infinite, which means God is ultimately ineffable or unknowable other than really what God reveals to us through his special revelation, which gives us a glimpse and God's general revelation as revealed in his design. So we get glimpses of God, but we can't fully wrap our minds around God because God is infinite and we are finite. And that's just a reality given we are limited and dependent on him. So this means that although we can know some things about God, he is ultimately beyond our comprehension. Although this may be a source of frustration or tension or worry or anxiety for many, maybe even a sense of, gives us a sense of sadness or depression or hopelessness. 
the apophatic stream of Christianity, also called the negative way, throughout the ages has embraced it. So, in fact, as ineffable, God is still absolutely worthy of our worship. And we can lean into this, not run from it, not try to control, not try to constantly fill in the gaps with an abstract knowledge. Abstract knowledge is absolutely needed, but we can also experience the awe and mystery and wonder of God of course, anchored to scripture, but sitting and basking in it. According to the Upper Room Dictionary of Christian Spiritual Formation, this apophatic or negative path or way captures, quote, the danger of words and concepts for God that is what we may soon begin to focus on. I'm sorry, the danger of words and concepts for God is that we may soon begin to focus on these human constructs that describe God rather than on the living God. We may be tempted for our own selfish ends to domesticate the divine who is beyond all human symbols or imagery. Scripture speaks of the nature of God as beyond all knowing. So although this may may make us nervous, If we can accept this reality, we are finite, God is infinite, God has revealed something about who he is through scripture, about his attributes and his actions and his plans and his promises, at the end of the day, we can worship God in reverential awe. And this is a good thing, that we can return the mystery and wonder of God back into Christianity rather than thinking we are the smartest person in the room. And this can have positive implications for mental and spiritual health. So building on secular psychology's understanding of awe, I'd like to make a case that Christian psychological and spiritual health is about worshiping God in reverential yielding awe, which means that we can be, it's a good thing that we are, overwhelmed with the mystery of God as a good, loving creator and sustainer. God is big and we are small and that is okay, and we can worship God in the midst of that context. So then, rather than creating an idol of God, then trying to contain him within our own limited, flawed understanding, human mind, God-given brain, we can look to Scripture to see who God is, then worship him with an amazement and awe and wonder that does not futilely, ineffectively try to contain him and turn him into essentially big self and small God. So when we worship God in reverence and awe, the world opens up and we can let go of our own self-preoccupations and rest in the strong, loving arms of a benevolent parent who has our best intentions in mind and has all of the answers, even though we may, most of the time, feel lost, confused, uncertain, anxious, sad, and frustrated. So in terms of a definition of worship and awe, turning to William Barclay's New Testament words. He points out that the Greek word eusebia, probably pronouncing that incorrectly, but it's spelled E-U-S-E-B-E-I-A, means true godliness, true religion, and true piety, as well as, quote, a right attitude to God, the attitude of awe, of reverence, of worship, and of obedience. And... Quote, to give God the place he 
he possesses in our minds, in our heads, and in our lives. Simply put, this Greek word, eusebia, is a right attitude and reverence toward God or godliness, worshiping God with respect, piety, awe, and wonder. Barclay states that the word is used over a dozen times in the New Testament and ultimately means, quote, a right attitude to God and to the holiness, the majesty, and the love of God. So God is big and we are small, and because of God's goodness, we can worship him in awe. And the source of this worshipfulness and awe is Jesus Christ, according to Barclay, including his help and presence and This worshipfulness and awe, although pursued with struggle, brings power, God himself, true thinking, a transcendent perspective on eternity, an attitude of worshipfulness extended to all of life, not just within the four walls of the church. And this worshipfulness and awe before God is, quote-unquote, the mark of the Christian life. So Barclay gives us really a lot to consider as we ponder worshipfulness and awe in the Christian life and its psychological and spiritual benefits. Turning to the Holman Bible Dictionary, in it, worship means, quote, the act or action associated with attributing honor, reverence, or worth to that which is considered to be divine by religious adherence. Christian worship is often defined as the ascription of worth or honor to the triune God. Worship is more fully understood as an interrelation between divine action and human response. So God acts and we respond. Worship is a human response to the self-revelation of the triune God. This includes, one, divine initiation in which God reveals himself, his purposes, and his will. Two, a spiritual and personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ on the part of the worshiper. And three, a response by the worshiper of adoration, humility, humility, submission, and obedience to God, end quote. According to the Upper Room Dictionary of Christian Spiritual Formation, worship is, quote, the activities by which persons and communities direct themselves to God. The one who alone is worthy of worship in acts of adoration, praise, confession, petition, lamentation, and thanksgiving. Worship is both a means to the spiritual life and and an expression of that life. As such, worship is itself a spiritual discipline. End quote. Moving on to David Peterson's book, Engaging with God, A Biblical Theology of Worship, written some time ago. Peterson says, quote, throughout the Bible, acceptable worship means approaching or engaging with God on the terms that he proposes and in the manner that he makes possible. It involves honoring, serving, and respecting him, abandoning any loyalty or devotion that hinders an exclusive relationship with him. Although some of Scripture's terms for worship may refer to specific gestures or homage, rituals, or priestly ministrations, worship is more fundamentally faith expressing itself in obedience and adoration. Consequently, in both testaments, it is often shown to be a personal and moral fellowship with God relevant to every sphere of life, end quote. To 
look to another book on really a biblical understanding of worship written by Daniel Block, entitled For the Glory of God, Recovering a Biblical Theology of Worship. Block says, to be human is to worship. So really, we're worshiping as humans. The question is what we choose to worship and what we choose to be inspired by, to be in awe of, to be deferential towards and yielding towards. We, deep down, desire to worship. Block goes on to remind readers that worship is based on worth, and, uh, I'm sorry, is based on worth and ship. So these two words, capturing one's person, one person's recognition of another person's superior status or honor. So here we're really seeing some consistency between a biblical understanding of worship and what is mentioned in the psychology literature on awe. There's a big other and little self, and this other is seen as morally good, morally superior. As per Block, worship can be an attitude and disposition that is a yielding, surrendering, psychological state in awe of God. A physical expression or gesture, such as submitting or bowing before God, or a liturgical expression or ritual, such as singing a hymn. Block notes that true Christian worship involves, quote, reverential awe, which, as a reminder, is mentioned at length in the secular psychology literature for our health. Overall, Bloch defines true Christian worship as, quote, reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accord with his will. So, with all of this in mind, taking the secular psychology literature in awe and a Christian understanding of worship in awe, my summary definition, which integrates worshipfulness and awe of God, is this. Worshipfulness is an adoring, abandoning, self-minimizing, and other-maximizing response of reverence and awe with all of our being, thoughts, feelings, intentions, and actions to the triune God and in and through him, all of life, including who he is as infinitely good and loving, wise, powerful, present, and holy, his actions, past, present, and future, especially his ultimate act of reconciliation via the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and his providential care, or perfect, loving, guiding governance, personally and intimately extended to all of creation. So although that's a lengthy definition, I tried to capture really all of the ingredients of Christian worship and awe. So it's an adoring, abandoning, self-minimizing, and other maximizing response of reverence and awe, really with all of our being, our whole psychological and spiritual being, to who God is in and through him, extended to all of life. We worship God in awe because of who he is, his attributes, he is infinitely good and loving, wise, powerful, present, and holy. We all should worship God because of his actions and how great they are. Thinking about the grand narrative of Scripture, God's redemptive plan, that God revealed himself to us and reconciled himself to us, even though he did not have to do so, as the potter relates to the clay. And that his 
good governance extends to all of creation, which means God is worthy of worship and we are not. So to put this succinctly, worshipfulness is about recognizing a big and perfect God in the foreground and relocating a little and imperfect self to the background. In so doing, we're honoring God who is as vast, infinite, good, and in control, and who we are as small, finite, imperfect, and dependent. God is big and we are not. And this can bring us a deep sense of peace because this is how we were designed. This approach can be extended to all of life, that we can approach life with mystery and wonder and awe and celebration and gratitude and thankfulness because God is the creator and we are not and we can rest in that identity. So it's about extending this to all of life, not just worshiping God for a few songs on Sunday morning at church while we stare at a worship band on a distant stage. And uh, according to Bloch, we can, returning to his book, we can worship God in all of life. And so we need to understand who the object is, who the subject is, and the domains of life in which worship can be applied. So as the object, God is the object who is infinitely loving and good and wise and powerful and present and holy. And we're extending his... And he has extended his, quote, gracious revelation of himself and in accord with his will, according to Bloch. So God is the object of our worship and awe. Who is the subject? We are the subject, the Christ follower has, who has been reconciled to God because of our union with Christ. So it's based on our believing in Christ, following Christ, emulating Christ, yielding to Christ, revealed in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. What are the domains, daily life, family life, work life, in our rituals, baptism, communion, in prayer life, in music, and in our offerings such as tithing? We can extend this worshipfulness to all of life, not compartmentalize it, and just see it as something we do on a Sunday morning, which is the tragedy of the contemporary church. Worshipfulness is all of life. So what are the ingredients a focus on God and his will, not the self, and our own will. It's an attitude and an action, not just about the interior life, although it is about a yielding posture before God. The source for who this God worthy of worship is, is found in the Bible, not unilaterally based on our own understanding of who God is or how to worship him. There's a focus on God as big and the self as small. There's a focus on God as perfect and the self as imperfect. There's a focus on God's goodness and the experience of awe before this good and perfect God. It's to be extended to all of life, not just confined to Sunday mornings for a few worship songs. It involves our our psychological and spiritual world, our thoughts, our feelings, our intentions, our attitudes, our behaviors. And we do this through singing and reading scripture and meditating and praying and contemplating and giving thanks and so on and so forth. We can worship God in thanking him over a meal and, and recognizing he is our provider. We can recognize God in and worship him in just 
following our breath and acknowledging that God has given us an autonomic nervous system. We can worship God in looking at our kids and saying, thank you, God, for giving the ability with my spouse to procreate and create life through you. And it's really the human response to God, not the other way around. God doesn't respond to us, although there's instances, of course, in the New Testament specifically, as well as throughout Scripture of God pursuing humankind. Really, it's our response to God. God is the initiator as perfect, as holy, as infinitely good and loving, and we respond to that. In terms of worship in the Bible, we we read in Colossians 3, Quote, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called in peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. End quote. So here we see that love binds all Christian virtues or moral behaviors together, and Jesus is to reside in our hearts as we worship and honor and adore him. So from my perspective then, worshiping God in reverence and awe involves loving him, which can be practiced, I think, through contemplative prayer in historic Christianity. So turning now to classic Christian spiritual writings, in the late Travis Monk, Thomas Merton's work, Contemplative Prayer, he links actually worship, love, and contemplation. He says, quote, without the spirit of contemplation in all our worship, that is to say, without the adoration and love of God above all, for his own sake, because he is God, Christian practices will not nourish a really Christian leadership based on Christ's love and carried out in the power of the Spirit, end quote. He goes on to say that the most important need in the Christian world today is this inner truth nourished, nourished by the spirit of contemplation. The praise and love of God, the longing for the coming of Christ, the thirst for the manifestation of God's glory, his truth, his justice, his kingdom in the world, these are all characteristically contemplative and eschatological aspirations of the Christian heart and they are the very essence of monastic prayer. Without this com- contemplative orientation, we are building churches not to praise him, but to establish more firmly the social structures, values, and benefits that we presently enjoy. So contemplative practice is about really in worship, reverence, and awe, reaching out to God in love. So in our worship, we need to contemplate the vastness and goodness of God in love, prioritizing God above all else, and extending this present moment, loving awareness of God to all we do in our relationships, actions, goals, and other life endeavors. With Merton's recommendation in mind, I'd like us to draw upon the teachings from the cloud of unknowing, an apathetic writing in the 14th century, anonymous writing, likely written by a monk, on contemplation to cultivate a deeper, more worshipful awe in God's loving goodness, which can be extended to all of life throughout the day. 
So in other words, because God is ultimately ineffable or unknowable, except for what he reveals to us via his word, the Bible, and in prayer, and so on and so forth, we can rest in the experience of the vastness and goodness of God, thanking him and being amazed by his mystery. In doing so, from my perspective, we can cultivate Christian mental and spiritual health, shifting from self to other, so we, we can live out our purpose or tell us to worship God and enjoy him forever, as the Christian Protestant tradition's shorter catechism reveals. So because scripture reveals that, quote, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justness, goodness, and truth, which is revealed in the Shorter Catechism, written in the 1600s, he is completely and totally worship of our, worthy of our worship and awe. And when we try to worship fallible human beings or ourselves, we inevitably come up short. So to be authentically who God has called us to be, recognizing that God is independent and we are dependent, God is infinitely good and we are not, God is infinite and we are finite, and ultimately God is deserving of our full, total, all-encompassing and yielding awe, and everything else will come up short and fail to satisfy our desire to worship. This is key. So let's wrap up the episode with a short practice. In the Cloud of Unknowing, the 14th century anonymous English monk advocated for reaching out to God in love, not human knowledge, in a cloud of unknowing, with an act of faith, placing everything else for the formal practice beneath a cloud of forgetting. So today, we'll be doing just that, practicing Christian contemplation in an effort to cultivate a greater attitude of worshipfulness and awe in love toward God, who is perfect and good in all of our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. So if Christian contemplation is really a present moment, loving awareness of God in love, downplaying the use of words and images in favor of a direct, quiet, intimate relationship with and experience of him, we can cultivate, I think, worshipfulness and awe in this manner. So to summarize this work, the cloud author states, quote, if you want to enter, live, and work in the cloud of unknowing, you will need a cloud of forgetting between you and all the things of this earth. Consider the problem carefully, and you will understand that you are farthest from God when you do not ignore for a moment the creatures and circumstances of the physical world. Attempt to blank out everything but God. You may wish to reach out to God with one simple word that expresses your desire. Once you have selected the word you prefer, permanently bind this word to your heart. This word becomes your shield and spear in combat and in peace. Use this word to beat upon the cloud, the cloudy darkness above you and to force every stray thought down under a cloud of forgetting. If a nagging thought pesters you, strike it with this word. So we're going to use the word love to reach out to, to God in wonder and in awe and in worshipfulness and place everything else that we might create as idols beneath a cloud of forgetting. So find a quiet environment free from distractions. Sit up straight in a supportive chair with your eyes closed. Place your hands comfortably in your lap. And start by saying a brief prayer to God, asking him to 
be with you and to teach you how to worship him, to teach you how to, in a manner worthy of who he is, worship him in awe in the next few minutes. And now begin to recite the chosen word, love, in your mind, reaching out to God in love. This word serves as a reminder, a symbolic reminder of your intentionality in placing all of your attention on God in an act of worship and awe, reaching for Him in faith in this cloud of unknowing, in love. 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 Placing all other thoughts beneath a cloud of forgetting, gently returning to the chosen word, love, when you notice you're thinking about earthly things or worshiping something other than God, such as fallible humans or yourself, for that matter. Love. Again and again, love. Reaching out to God, being overwhelmed in a good way, in awe of the mystery of God's goodness, of his perfect goodness and love. To be in wonder before him, to see him as big and us as small. Love, placing everything else beneath a cloud of forgetting. Love. Again and again. Love. In simplicity, we're allowing ourselves to let go of everything other than God. Love. He is big. He is vast. He is wonderful. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy worthy of our reverence. And we are small. And this is good. Because this is how God designed it. God designed us to worship him and to enjoy him through the act of worship. We can contemplate that in love. 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 And as we begin to conclude the episode, say a brief prayer to God, thanking Him for His care over all of His creation and that He is infinitely good and loving and He is worthy alone of worship. Ask Him to help you to continue to cultivate and display worshipfulness throughout the day, a sense of awe in God's mystery, a sense of awe in enjoying God's creation. So to conclude, in this episode, we, we've discussed the psychological and spiritual benefits of Christian worship and awe. Because we were born finite, independent, and imperfect, We crave to worship in awe before a perfect, loving God. 
Yet we may end up worshiping the wrong things or other people when we really need to worship God, who is the only one who will satisfy our need. Because he's infinitely good and loving and wise and powerful and present and holy, among other attributes, and his actions speak for themselves, that God created, that God redeemed, God will eventually restore. So in doing so, we're acknowledging we were designed for him as finite and dependent, and we will not experience psychological and spiritual peace and well-being and health until we yield and surrender the big self and trade it in for a small self and to acknowledge God's position, which is at the center. And nothing short of our Creator will end up satisfying our need for worship and awe. Please join me again for another episode of The Christian Psychologist. Thank you.